Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 159. Once more into the breach, LinuxCon Part 2. Recorded September 7th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week is only the gooey kid, Seth Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the Element OPI Everyday Growing Legion of People Type Persons. Is that hyphenated? Um, at least one okay. and a semicolon somewhere. <laughs> Chris is not with us this week. Uh, he had a last minute, um, work related thing that, uh, pulled him out. So there you go. Chris isn't going to be here. Uh, but this is going to be Seth's, uh, the part two, the final part. I'm not going to let him be a, a part three of Seth's, uh, Linux con wrap up. We've got a couple of more interviews that he did. Um, uh, and then we, of course, have some listener feedback and some uh, newsy type stuff. Not really. He didn't give us any news, did he? No, we skipped that part. Oh, there it is no, down it, there. Yeah. I just hadn't scrolled that far down. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But before we go too far, this, uh, this week, before we speak to you again, uh, will be September 11th, and there will be all kinds of memorial type things going on. So I just wanted to add my voice to that chorus uh I don't really have anything else to say about that. It just, I didn't want to let that date pass. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, uh, it was a date that changed the world. Um, and we are still changing the world. I mean, we, we complained a couple of weeks ago about your travel experiences and mine. And that's all because of that date, September 11th, 2001. Uh, and it's continuing to change the world. And, uh, hopefully we can, we can be good humans and make the change not negative, but sometimes the goodness of humanity isn't worth a lot. I wish I could disagree. <laughs> All right. That was cheery. Uh, so I, I also wanted to say uh, something a little more cheerful. Uh, we wrapped up the month of October, uh, August. Ever since I was like five, <laughs> I have confused October and August in my brain. I don't know why, but I can't get over it. Uh, we wrapped up the month of August. So, uh, I, once all the uh, tickers settled down and I knew how much, uh, uh, was coming in from advertisements and donations and, and your amazon.com, uh, purchases, uh, once all that came in, I made a donation in your name to the sonar project. So every, the everyday Linux audience donated to, uh, accessibility, uh, in the free world and the not free world. So thank you for your faithfulness and allowing me to, uh, to do that. Yes. Cool. So, um, I, I like, uh, our donations. I think, uh, I think they're really cool. It's awesome that people give to us and we're able to turn around and give some of that back. Right. So we appreciate you all. Thank you very much. Yeah. And in case you, you don't know what that's about, uh, it's not, I, I mean, we've mentioned it a few times, but, uh, in we did an episode a while back. It was basically a put up or shut up episode where I complained that we, myself included, talk a good game but don't actually pay for anything. That the open source community is widely known for people who don't pay for stuff. Um, and if they can't get it free, they just will go somewhere else and you know they'll steal it. 
uh, if they have to. And I thought, we need to change that. I need to change that. And I made a commitment to take 10% of whatever money I make doing this show and donate to open source projects in your name. So that's what that's about. If you're a new listener uh, and and you don't know what we're talking about, that's what it is. I uh, after after all the the revenue sources, and it's not a lot of money. We don't we, we don't do this show for money. We do it. Uh, actually, I haven't quite figured out why we do it, uh, but uh, we do make a little bit of money thanks to sponsors and thanks to your generous donations. At uh, um, and so we take every month ten percent of that. Actually, I usually do a little more than ten percent. I round it up. Uh, and we donate that to a, a worthy open source project. So, so far we've done uh, the Audacity project, uh, Linux Mint, and uh, this we this month, uh, the Sonar project. That's cool. You know, we got to like put a chart or something, like start a forum post and just list what we do. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Um, as I'd said previously, I don't want to put amounts in there. I think right. that makes it kind of gauche. Um, whenever possible, I prefer to donate anonymously and in fact it bugs me that almost everybody myself included uses paypal to accept donations and there's no anonymous way to donate with paypal um and and anytime somebody i see a new donation from a new person i send them a personal email and say thanks because it means a lot to me so that's the benefit of it not being anonymous but i've always been brought up maybe that's a southern thing uh to to give in private and just don't talk about it yeah, I, I like to do a lot of my giving behind the scenes as well. So, but, and yeah, I think it would just be cool just to list the things that we have supported. And again, it's not so much the amount because, you know, $10 for one person is a lot more than if somebody else gave a thousand it, because it, it's the, it's the sacrifice that you made. Um, and the, uh, the gift of your heart versus the actual size of it that right. is just as important, if not more so. All right, enough about that. We have a little bit of feedback. Uh, in fact, uh, all the feedback this week? No. no. Uh, all but one of them uh, is directly related to last week's show where we talked about uh, sharing versus piracy and illegality versus unethicality. Uh, and so Fuzzy writes in to say that we... Uh, or he doesn't write in. He sent us a voicemail. Say that we missed one of the his favorite parts about the BitTorrent technology. So here that is there, a, a voicemail from our uh, Google Voice line. Hey, guys, it's Fuzzy from Colorado. I uh, just got about halfway through your uh, previous episode there, and you missed one of the neatest points of the BitTorrent technology. I'm surprised you forgot about it. Uh, it it's its fault tolerance. When was the last time you had to check an MD5 sum on a distro that you downloaded from torrent files. Uh, that was one of the original purposes for BitTorrent itself, uh, is to be able to find a fault-tolerant method for downloading large files. If you get just a hiccup in downloading anything more than just a couple of megs, sometimes you can get a file that's so corrupted that uh, it won't play, won't run, won't do anything else. Uh, people caught on to the fact that, hey, uh, Video files are big, and that's a lot of why you end up with videos on BitTorrent. But that's also why BitTorrent is the underlying technology to Steam, because you see how big movies are. Some of these games are three, four, or five times as big as a feature-length film. So that's also the underlying technology for Steam, too. Catch you later. Bye. 
I did not know that about Steam. I'm sure Chris did and would have regaled us were he here. But that's right. We 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 talked about the fact that BitTorrent is its biggest strength is distributed bandwidth in that I don't have to get a seven gig file from one person. I can get seventy hundred meg files from uh from seventy people. Uh, and and it works if my math was right, um, and it works that way. But also the yeah, you know, like you said, the beauty of it is it assembles them in such a, a robust way that you can really lose large chunks of it, and it just backfills those. All right, thank yeah, you. thank you, I Seth, for your great commentary. Man, I mean, you know, he just did such a great job of explaining it, and you know, that was kind of one of the points I made is that like. You know, the whole point of the Internet, the Defense Department wanted something that could survive a nuclear blast. Exactly. And so you have to be fault tolerant to do that. And while the spirit of the foundation of the Internet is alive and well in the torrents, but unfortunately, the uh, the pocketbook of the Internet is not. And uh, it's the pocketbook that drives the innovation sometimes. Those of us that have been around long enough to remember dial-up modems will know that you couldn't download anything over five megs the first try. It just wasn't going to happen. And and initially, early browsers, the Mosaic browsers and the first versions of Netscape and uh, even IE, didn't know how to continue downloads. So if you got 10 megs into a 12 meg file and, and it got corrupted, you started over again. And uh, 12 megs was a ginormous file back then that would literally take you overnight to download. Yep. I was downloading a uh, 60 gig collection of files just recently and was complaining that it was going to take overnight. Uh, things have changed. Hell yeah. I, I might can do six gigs overnight if, uh, if I get really good speed between myself and the tower, maybe six. But I have all, uh, all the files for, for this show, all 158 previous episodes, uh, not only the, the the mp3s but the raw audacity files and the edited audacity files i put them all on a drive um and i had a a bunch that i had had stored up and i was trying to upload them of course upload is is slower than download anywhere right uh, and i was trying to push several gigs of them up to my uh cloud server and uh i was like this is gonna take 15 hours gah and yeah and then realized how spoiled i was being uh, I you know that's the term first world problems. Yes, uh, that would be a good episode name. First world problems. Uh, we could we could really riff on that one. That could be a lot of fun. But thank you, Fuzzy, great name by the way, uh, for reminding us that uh, that great thing. BitTorrent is really a modern miracle of technology, and uh, maybe we should do. Uh, Seth, put this on your to do list. Let's get some of the the big BitTorrent guys. I don't even know who they are. Uh, and let's see if we can get them on here and talk about BitTorrent because it's a fascinating subject that none of us knows enough about. Well, I mean, hey, you know, if I can get turned down by Richard Stallman's office, I'm sure I can get turned down by the BitTorrent guys, too. Oh, were so you officially I, turned down? Well, I was officially ignored. Oh, okay. So I don't know if that counts as turned down, but it was a, it was given to his secretary, and then that was the end of it. So <laughs> at the very least, I've been ignored, if not turned down. So somebody on his, his staff had heard of this show and said, Oh no, 
not going to happen. Well, no, because it wasn't everyday GNU slash Linux. That's true. It was just everyday Linux. That's, I hadn't even thought about that. The very name of the show is offensive to him. Awesome. Pro- you know, but the thing is, we could talk about stuff that wasn't even yeah, the Linux OS. Only. You know, we could talk about the uh, GNU kernel or the project they're doing, like trying to the open source router firmware to give free internet to people. You know, so we don't even have to right. talk about you know Linux distributions. Um, but yeah, I've I've been ignored, which you know I'm I've been ignored by other people too. So it's not a big deal. Nothing surprising in that at all. Right. All right. And the next bit of listener feedback comes from Brandon, who felt the need to defend video editing in Linux. And this comes from, I believe, two shows ago uh, where I lamented that uh, there isn't a an iMovie or Windows Movie Maker alternative in Linux. And Brandon says, nuh-uh. says, hey, Windows lovers. Love that. I was just sending this uh, short note uh, as sort of my two cents on the subject of video editing in Linux. I use KDN Live, which is pretty good in my opinion. You don't have to be a genius to figure the program out, and it works for what I need. I'm the sound slash video guy for my church, True Vine Christian Fellowship, and use the program for recording, producing, uh, and producing the online servants. Sermons. I run uh, two dual boot systems. Uh, one with Windows 8.1, the other with Windows 7, both with Linux Mint 17 Kiana. Uh, I love the show and look forward to it every week. You guys do a stellar job. Thanks, guys. P.S. If you're interested in seeing the final project, you can find the sermons online at truevinechristianfellowship.com. Um, and I knew about KDN, KDN Live, K-D-E-N-L-I-V-E. I knew about that, but it had been several years, maybe four or five years since I last used it. And at the time, it was not ready for prime time. So at Brandon's encouragement, I uh, loaded it up on my uh, Mint box. And I got to say, it's come a long way. I would call this ready for the novice. It's not as easy. Um, it's still a little more uh, tweaky geeky than you know Windows Movie Maker or iMovie uh, is. Uh, but it's serviceable for the uh the average guy so uh thanks for that heads up and um i will now retract my statement that linux does not have a solid easy to use uh video editor because it does cool and brandon don't forget you didn't say you did but you want to put uh classic shell on your windows 8.1 machine (laughs) to make it actually usable and uh i'll have to go to uh, your website and take a look and give you a critique on how well you're able to uh video edit the sermons all right and uh i just joe p is in the chat room says i just sent you guys an email no joe that's not how it works you can't send us an email while the show is going uh we'll probably read it next week uh so moving on the next bit of email comes from paul who uh uh, writes in about our discussion on sharing and uh, compares movies to cars says hi all interesting discussion chock full of murky areas obviously it's car analogy time to me it revolves around utility that is you get something even if it's digital and thus not tangible and you use it a car you drive and a music file you listen to. Seth mentioned that if he scrounged up the overheated VCR tapes, he'd be okay with downloading a new copy to replace the damaged one. By that reasoning, if you leave your car out in Texas weather for years, with the windows rolled down, of course, uh, you should be able to go to the dealer and get a replacement for free. 
On the flip side, suppose you take perfect care of the tapes and they turn out to be simply defective. In that case, it seems more ethical, in quotes, to download a copy since the original turned out to have a manufacturing defects. I get pirated copies of things here and there, so I too am guilty as charged. One time I wanted to read iStation Zebra on my Kindle, but the only digital copy was on Amazon UK and therefore I couldn't buy it. So I've downloaded a scan slash OCR PDF, which was marginal, marginal at best. I would have much rather paid for a copy that didn't have weird typos. As evidenced by your show, this subject could go on for days. Thanks for what you do. Look forward to it every week, Paul. Uh, and then he says, P.S. Re audiobooks. Um, the Harry Potter series is good for long road, tr- road trips, even for adults. And the great courses, a.k.a. the teaching company, are truly great, particularly the history ones. History of the U.S., Civil War, Great Battles of the Ancient World, yada, yada, yada. Also, books that have changed history and the wisdom of history. Um, books, uh, my kids grew up on them listening over and over because they're just so well done. Uh, I will... I will talk about audiobooks in just a second. I want to address that. But to go into your analogy, your analogy falls apart, Paul. Um, and here's why. When you buy a, let's go back and let's say it's 1986 again. Uh, if you buy um, a VHS copy of Star Wars, you are not, you are buying a VHS tape, but that is incidental. What you're buying is the rights to watch the Star Wars movie that has been tried out in u.s courts and world courts over and over that's why it's legal for you to take that movie and put it on your mp uh, your ipod it's why it's legal to take a, a cd and rip it and put it on your mp3 player because you're not buying the medium if you were buying the mediums only then it would be illegal to rip a dvd or rip a cd and it's not you're buying the rights to the content regardless of the medium. And it's held up in court time and time again that it's okay to copy LPs to cassette tapes. It's okay to copy cassette tapes to MP to CDs and it's okay to copy CDs to MP3s. So the medium is irrelevant in your car analogy. You're not going to the dealership and buying the rights to drive a car for 10 years. You're buying a specific piece of hardware. Um, I would I would argue that maybe in a leasing scenario it's closer to you're buying the rights to buy uh, to drive a car for a period of time. Uh, so that analogy really doesn't hold up. It's one that I've thought of and wrestled with before. But there's a difference between buying the rights to something and buying the physical version of something. And in the, at least in the U.S. and in several other countries in the world, when you buy a videotape or a DVD or a cassette tape or a CD, you are not buying the medium. The medium is incidental. Uh, the same with software. You're not buying your copy of Windows on a DVD. The, the DVD is incidental. You're buying the rights to use Windows. So it doesn't hold up. What do you think, Seth? Um, I did not know the, uh, the legality of the whole medium versus thing. But like I do know with Windows, you know, Microsoft puts their software as long as they still support it like you can go download windows 7 from microsoft's digital river store and you have i think it's like 120 day grace period but if you have a legally valid product key that you own then you can re-download the medium to install it so that you know whether you had the dvd and lost it or not or if you bought a machine that didn't come with recovery media but it has the coa sticker on it you're definitely able to and you know like i say here is my ethical conundrum 
I had the right to make a backup copy of the VHS tape while it was good. Now that I've waited for it to go bad, do I have the right to seek to acquire said backup? I, I don't know what the legal or the ethical stance on that would be. Well, you know, you, you don't have the right to insure your house after it burns down. Right. Uh, so, uh, but that's the thing. That's, that's a different question than what Paul said. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's a murky thing and you can go on forever. But I, I did want to, want to address that. That's one of the things that makes intellectual property so much different than real property. But did you know, by the way, that's why it's called real estate? It's real property. Anything that is physical and exists is real property. Um, intellectual pop- property movies are intellectual property. So you are buying the ideas and the the efforts of somebody. You're buying so the words that somebody wrote and the, the lines that an actor acted and the the sound that a recordist recorded, but it's not real property. It's intellectual property. And the rules are different. And I think it would be better if the rules were the same. But in most countries in the world, certainly in the U.S., they're not the same. Yep. Um, and I just wanted to... Uh, jump on to his uh, thing about audiobooks. Seth, I got to say, I finished the Honor Harrington uh, book one uh, on Basilisk Station. And it was 33, I believe, chapters long. Five of those chapter- chapters were riveting. 26 of them were okay. And two of them I had to just barely slog through to get there. Um, I know that it's one of your favorite book series. I need you to convince me to read slash listen to the next book because I'm not seeing it. Uh, the most exciting book was, I'll have to look, but for the honor of the queen, that one was, okay, that one, I would have to look, but I think that one was like the most exciting. Um, and, but the first time I read on, or the first time I tried to read on Basilisk Station, I got a little bit into it and I just stopped because I couldn't handle it. Um, and then that was probably six months or so before I sat down and read it again. But this time when I read it, it was into it. There's several things in there, like this one scene where she's pursuing the, uh, the, the freighter warship and then it goes into like a two chapter on the, uh, the physics of hyper. I was just like, what the heck am I reading? This is oh a terrible gosh. place to put a physics lesson on Warshawski sales and gravity waves. Oh, golly, that was hard to get through. But <laughs> I was so into what was going to come, I I stayed with it. So. And that's why he put it there, right? I, I think that's yeah. exactly. He probably had that at the beginning of the book because it's important to explain why why you have these compensator and these things that become important later on. Right. Right. And he had to explain that he did, he did his, at least his, his science fiction science on it. That right. there, there's some real words put in there. Uh, but I think he probably put that in like chapter two and his editor said, no, nobody will ever get to chapter three if you do this. So put it in the middle of this battle scene and yes. go there. It was, there was, uh, but I don't, to me, I don't think it was, that difference you know you, you got to realize they're like 300 books into the series now <laughs> yeah so and so that's got- what i think basilisk station was his first work nobody's first work is their best work so that's yeah. what's making me want to go to the next one and the character is interesting enough and he obviously created a rich universe 
Uh, but gosh, it was just a slog at several points there. There were a few points where it, it was kind of, um, a bit wordy in places, you know, but, uh, some of that, some of the characters that get mentioned show up books down the road. And so it's kind of good. And many things in there have repercussions later in the series. That's one of the things I think he does really well yeah. is that. You know, something might just seem like random bits of data here, but later on you see where it was really important. And so, you know, and I don't know, I, I super enjoyed it, but you know, I was, I guess I was, I probably need to go back and reread it because it's been a while, but I really enjoyed them, but that one wasn't the best one out of the early ones. But I will say that where we're at now, it, I don't like them as much because the universe has gotten so broad and so expansive and the characters that I like aren't on the front lines. They're kind of the behind the scenes people now because they're so advanced in rank. It's in, in some sense, it's not quite as exciting as it used to be. Um, it's kind of like the later, ep- the later seasons of Stargate. I still enjoyed those, but they weren't as good as the originals. Yeah. And I gotta, I give, uh, I've forgotten the name of the author, Andrew something or other. I gotta give David him credit. Weber. Uh, David Weber. Okay. Yeah, I give him credit for being willing to kill one of his favorite characters. Uh, cause there were a couple of characters that, you know, were, were important to you as you listened to the book who just got sucked out an airlock or whatever. And, and so that's, uh, yeah, kudos, kudos to you for that. Not a lot of guys have the, uh, the courage to do that. His wife has told him, um, if you've read any of the interviews, um, Honor Harrington's, uh, steward, uh, McGinnis, uh, his wife has said, you're not allowed to kill him. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, and there's one, well, anyway, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anybody in the universe might die except for him. Yeah. It's, uh, it, he's off limits according to David Weber's wife. It's no so, Game of Thrones. It's not everybody right. you love dies. Um, right. But, but people, uh, people are willing to, uh, he is willing to kill people. So, uh, I, I will say that, uh, I, I would not recommend this book as highly as Seth does. The Lost Fleet series, on the other hand, that book had me from chapter one of book one to chapter 14 of book six. I, I wanted more. And he won a little Hollywood ending at the end, but you got to forgive a guy for that. Um, he wasn't sure probably that there would be a next series, but uh, that one I highly recommend. If you want to check out either of these, please go to elementopi.com slash audible and use our uh, free trial to check it out. You won't be disappointed. See, that, as I commented last week, I've, I've gotten back into quote-unquote reading. It's not reading, but I'm going to say reading. And so now... That's a new thing that we're going to talk about every week. Sorry, folks. It's not just because I have a, a, a referral link that I can point you at. It's because it's a new thing that I have missed for so many years that I'm back into. And so uh, Audible has, uh, has I don't know, rejuvenated my my literary, literary nerve. Uh, the book I'm reading right now, I'm only in the first chapter, but it's called The Android's Dream. And in the first chapter, I have laughed out loud at least three times. It's a, it's a sci-fi book. It's read by Will Wheaton. So Ensign Wesley Crusher uh, reads it. Um, and, you know, I, the basic premise is a guy unwittingly sets off 
an intergalactic um uh political incident and is like has to go off on some weird quest to keep two universes from going into battle kind of thing uh, that's the basic premise but it's it's funny it's lighthearted and uh, i don't often laugh out loud when i read slash listen to books and i have a couple times just in the first chapter of this one cool that sounds sounds interesting yeah okay uh moving right along to the next listener feedback robert has a little something to say about repurchasing media hey guys i love the podcast and the little linux nuggets among some smart guys in their lives love the movie reviews that kept me from wasting two hours with the noah movie i wanted to give my two cents on oh by the way seth a friend of mine uh wanted to take me to go see um lucy and i said no i I will not do it you can go by yourself and tell me how it went he did and he said you were right i shouldn't have gone (laughs) so there's another one to save two hours um, where I was going. I wanted to give my two cents on the particular part of the digital copy debate. I think you should have to repurchase a copy of media if the previous one was broken, just like you would have to do with anything else. If I break my iPhone, I'll have to purchase another one unless it has a warranty. Or if my child drops his glass snow globe, we have to buy another one. I don't want to just walk into a store and grab one and walk out claiming we already bought one. I don't know if this helps, uh, but well, so I'll, yeah, yeah, we're done there. Uh, same argument that uh that paul had above there's a difference between the 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 thing and the rights to an intellectual property i think your argument falls apart in the same way i'm not saying everybody go out and re-download things i'm just saying that if you're going to have an intelligent debate about something you need to really make sure that you that you're looking at all aspects of it i i kind of sound like i'm the pro piracy guy and I'm really not. Um, well, but see, that's the problem is you've had one side of the debate set the terms and the other and basically criminalizing. And this happens in politics all the side, all the time. You know, if you're a right wing person and you listen to Fox News, they automatically say the left is stupid. Therefore, any position they take is at best stupid, if not illegal slash criminal. If you're a liberal, you listen to MSN and you say the Republicans are idiots and therefore anything they say, if it's not illegal, it's just stupid. Um, and so you have the motion picture association and the recording association, you know, and their army of lawyers who have to get paid anyway setting the debate that you have to rebuy this every time otherwise you're a thief and you hate children and uh, you're like a communist and so only one side has been active in the debate and that's why you sound pro-piracy by having a rational by right. attempting to have a rational conversation it's internet mark get your rationality out of here yeah so let's take um here's a good example the uh the original recordings of any of the Beatles albums, right? Anything, any digital version we have of that is a less accurate representation of the analog recordings they made. That's just the facts. Digital uh, always adds compressions, always loses signals. So if you want to go out and buy uh, a lossless version of that, having had the LP, which is a lossless analog version, are you not simply getting what you could already have had all right or what you already so you had the the lp there was a lossless analog now you want a lossless digital do do you have that right 
I I would uh, say much more so on the side of that one is yes, you're just you're just buying a, an uncrapified version of of what they sold you originally, right? So the original one was pure. Then they crapified it by making an an MP3 out of it, and you know, and then Apple has you know doing their their high quality high bandwidth. It's still less information, less uh, fidelity than the original analog. So I might say that's okay, but let's say the Star Trek: The Next Generation series, which started in 1987, it was crapified from the beginning, just because it was done in 1987. There are people who've gone through and they've upscaled that. They've upsampled it. They've retouched it. They've they've uh, uh, redone the special effects. And now there's this full 1080p Blu-ray version that is the same stories and the same acting and all that. But all the visual effects have been added. They've washed all the colors. I would say in that case, you don't have the right to go get that. That is not the same thing that you downloaded over the air in 1987 and put on a VHS tape. So I, I just I just br- want to bring that out to point out to illustrate the difference between somebody selling you a shadow of the thing that you bought, which is the rights to listen to Abbey Road, versus somebody going in and totally remastering and remaking and making a better version of the original, which is the Blu-ray version of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I would see those as two different things. The law does not. Any thoughts on that, Seth? Yeah, no, that was something I thought about over the week. If if you bought something at the lower quality, you would only have, at best, you would only have the right to torrent that same quality. If you torrented something at a higher sample rate, then you would be attempting to get something you never paid for versus simply obtaining the backup you had a right to. So I totally agree with the point you just made is what I was trying to say. Well, good. That's important. As long as people agree with me, life is good. So uh, continuing on, um, Robert has some more to his email. He says, also, Seth, thanks for the tip on the Linux class on edx.org. I'm taking it now and probably will get a subscription to the Linux learning thing you guys talk about all the time. What is that again? Mark, this is a good transition for you. Take care, guys, and thanks for all the hard work. Well, Robert, the the Linux thing that we're always talking about is the linuxacademy.com. Uh, where you can uh, use step-by-step video courses to take you from being a beginner to a Linux administrator. And I, I got an email from Anthony uh, early uh, earlier this week, and he let me know of some big changes that they're working on right now, totally revamping uh, the whole thing, adding a ton of content. It's not ready yet, so he didn't give me specifics on it. But one thing he did say is that he said, and I agree, that the way they're doing the one-week free trials that converts to a one-month automatic pay thing isn't working it's ticking people off because they feel like it's a bait and switch right and um i think i think he's right on that and i'm glad that he came to that realization um unfortunately he doesn't have a solution right now so the temporarily there is no free trial there you just have to take my word for it if you want to go try it and sign up uh for the linux academy we're working out uh some uh, some some sort of thing i really think he needs to have some sort of free content uh for for you guys because i know that you know that i would not buy i would not plunk down 25 dollars for something sight unseen you know I, 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 there at least needs to be some sample courses some sample content give me give me something um so i know they're working on that but i just wanted to put that right now as the time of this recording there isn't a free trial right now 
But when you go, if you decide to risk uh, a, a one month, you'll find that once you get there, there's there's hundreds of step-by-step videos. But it's not just videos, right? Uh, people, I often hear from people about this. Why can't I just go to YouTube and search on Linux? You certainly can. And you will get a 14-year-old kid in his bedroom who may be a genius. Uh, and he will have some screen capture software and he will be showing you what to do. That is so much less than what the Linux Academy offers. They offer, uh, you know, uh, people who are in the field, people who are professional educators. They're making this content that is keyed to industry standard uh, tests and metrics uh, that has been independently certified as high quality. But not only is it videos, but each of those videos comes with with a companion a PDF document that's time-coded and says, here's what I talked about here, and here's the steps here. So if you're a visual learner, you watch the video, great. If you're a textual learner, you've got the PDF. You can read that at your own pace. Video may go too fast for you. may go too slow for you. You can read that and then look at the time codes. If you want to go back and see something demonstrated, you can just scrub through to 6 minutes and 14 seconds of video number 297 and know exactly what you need to do. That, that in itself is a great bonus. But then when you're done, after you've taken your, your course, there's a practice quiz that says, hey, do you really know the stuff that you're supposed to know? You take that and it'll tell you, you did well here, you didn't do so well here, and you can keep going back until you ace that test. And then when you've done that, when you've gone worked through not only the courses, but the, the whole module and you're ready to go, there's even a practice certification exam that, again, has been certified by the people like EI, uh, 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 the Linux Professional FPI, Linux Professional Institute, Institute and uh, the uh, CompTIA, uh, the Linux Plus and the, the LPIC people have certified their practice exam and said, yeah, this is, this is it. If you pass this, you, you're going to pr- pass our exam. And they're pretty confident in that because so far it's been happening. People are taking the courses, they're passing the practice exam, they're going and they're getting certified. You can get all this for 25 bucks for your first month. If you just want to try it out and just say, hey, what, what do I think about this? $25. That may be a little much for some of you. Um, and that's why I'm hoping they'll have some sort of free trial so you can at least see what you get. But 25 bucks a month for a classroom setting. I, mean, I paid thousands of dollars to go to college. Uh, $25 for a course for a month is is nothing even for one course it would be nothing but it's so much more than just one course but like anything else if you buy in bulk you get a discount so if you buy a quarter three months it's twenty dollars a month or if you buy annually it's 199 bucks which translates to less than 17 dollars a month so go check them out when you do use the code everyday linux to let them know that we sent you yeah guys and you know you're not going to beat this price because you get you know, there is something for being in a classroom, but if you're not in the classroom, this is the next best thing. You have a virtual classroom. You have instructors who are more responsive than, you know, some YouTube channel you've subscribed to. And if you're willing to invest the time, if you want to get in the IT field or if you want to move up in the IT field, uh, here's a weird story. I was in Wendy's on lunch break and this guy i could tell he had found some recruiter and that recruiter would not let him off the line because he was wanting he was wanting to get into it um because he had done some some work with computers but he wanted to get into it and i was like hey man go to this website linuxacademy.com take a look at it and see if it's not everything you want to know because if if you're hungry if you're driven if you really want there if you put in the time, you know, if you sign up 
It's not magical osmosis that makes you a genius. But if you want to work, this gives you the tools and the field to work in to maximize your studying and your learning potential. It's well worth the 20, it's well worth the $25 a month. Um, much less the $200 a year. Most places will want $200 up front and then you'll pay the uh, real amount after that. So $200 for a year of this caliber of learning. If you know how to watch a YouTube video, you've met the prerequisites. They'll, they'll take you the rest of the way. All right. And so with having said all that, thanks for the lead in there, Robert. Um, let's uh, jump on to the, our discussion of the week, which is Seth's ra- wrap up about uh, the Linux, uh, the Linux con, unless you had any other old news today, old business, any other old business, Seth? Uh, no, um, the, the stuff I had put in the show, we actually covered over Excellent. the course of the feedback. Okay. So on to nope. the new business, the chair recognizes Seth Anderson, uh, element OP delegate to the Linux con 2014. Okay. Well, you know, like I say, I, I went to the Linux con. I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I was a little overwhelmed with the security summit. Um, but the actual, um, breakout sessions, one, the keynotes were awesome. I would recommend you just go and take a look at them. They're online. You can watch them for free. But the actual breakout sessions, those were pretty cool as well. Uh, I'm just going to hit the highlights of some of the ones I went to. Um, and actually, the first interview we have coming up is with Amy. And um, she did a session about the Firefox OS and the Linux kernel. Um, just she talked about. And I did. I, well, I won't steal my thunder of the interview, but um, <laughs> I actually, after interviewing with her, I, I was more impressed with her. But she just talked about how the Firefox OS implements the Linux kernel, uh, and it kind of strips out. It's not as full a feature set as Android, but it's not as bloated as Android. So it's a much simpler thing. And you know, you're not going to have the Galaxy 5 or the Galaxy Super S squared, whatever, but you can get an entry level smartphone. Um, and it, it's more open. You know, you're not, you don't have to go to the Google Play Store. Um, you know, you can just do independent apps. You can do HTML5 or whatever you want. And she just, she talked about it, it was really kind of cool and interesting. Um, th- this was one I was able to kind of get some stuff out of. And then I saw her a couple of days later. Um, and I said, Hey, you mind if I interview you? And she said she had actually heard of our podcast. So, um, she probably says that to everybody. Well, but, but anyway, she at least <laughs> said it, you know, other people go, who are you? But she's like, Oh, I think I've heard of you. Uh, she might have had us confused with the everyday Linux user, um, his blog site, because every time I search for us, I find more results for him. It seems yes. like than us, but, um, go ahead and cue the interview for Amy and, uh, we'll kind of talk about that. All right. Hey everyone, this is Seth again, and I'm here with Amy Marie, who gave a talk about the Firefox OS. So Amy, thank you for taking a few minutes to be on our podcast. Thanks. Um, why don't you start, just give us a, like a one minute, who is Amy Marie? Um, so yeah, my name is Amy Marie, I'm from Sydney, Australia. I've been in America, in Portland, doing some stuff with Mozilla on the Firefox OS mobile support team. Uh, recently just finished doing 
up that work and been travelling around to conferences. <laughs> um, my background is in systems architecture, so Linux systems architecture and then also mobile devices and web. Awesome. I saw that you contributed to the Mego project, which I just have to say I loved Mego. I thought it was awesome, and I found it right after it died, so I was bummed about that. Uh, yeah, no, Mego was fantastic. Uh, that's actually what led me onto the Firefox OS trail, um, was being in London and kind of being slightly upset about the whole ending of that and what was what was going to be my next focus. And then I bumped into one of the gentlemen who was kind of spearheading the Firefox OS project and said, well, you should have a look at this. Um, Mego does live on in the <laughs> land of Yocto. So uh, the Yocto project is a project that allows you to kind of roll your own Linux distribution. So there is still remnants of it out there. It won't die. Awesome. Well, you've mentioned Firefox OS several times, so just kind of a softball question for you. Why do we need another mobile OS? I think choice is good. So choice is always good. Um, Firefox OS is quite different. While it, it has, it's kind of like a derived uh, Android so you could think of it as being Android with a bit taken out and then a bit of extra things put in from Mozilla. I think the reason that makes it really different is whereas your Windows and your Apple and also your Android have their own marketplace and that's really the only place that you as a developer can kind of get applications onto devices, Firefox OS is open so you can put your application up to the marketplace or you can actually just host it on your own website or install it on your own phone. And it's also open web standards, which means that you don't need to know Java, Objective-C, uh, C-sharp to be able to write an application. So the barrier of entry is really low because you really just need HTML, CSS and JavaScript. So it's actually um, very different in that sense to the other ecosystems out there. Um, would you say just an end user looking at it, are they going to think, oh my gosh, this is like a foreign language, or do you think they would pick it up pretty easily? Well, because it is, I mean, so, the, you know, the kernel itself is the kernel, which is always the tricky and harder parts that you need, the C++ and all the extra knowledge for. But when you're writing applications for it, uh, you don't need to know any of that. So it's similar to Android and all the rest of them where the application really sits at the top of levels. But it's HTML and CSS and JavaScript. So I think the barrier of entry is a lot lower than learning something like Objective-C for example. So I think it's a great way to start playing with writing your own mobile apps. If you know a little bit of it, if you've done a little bit of web development, then you can really take up and make your own application. And there's a lot of tutorials out there on the web for that as well. Awesome. Well, um, so how does LinuxCon North America 2014 compare to some of the other conferences you've been to? So this is actually my first LinuxCon in America. So uh, it's, it's fantastic. I've been to LinuxCon in Europe uh, I won a free ticket through Linux Foundation to go there last year in Edinburgh, so that was awesome. Uh, we have Linux Conf in Australia, which is much more systems administrator focused. Uh, uh, so it's whereas this tends to be more developer focused. So that's kind of, I guess, the big difference. Is um, first time in Chicago, so it's always great to come to a new place. Okay, well, I don't want to tie you up all day. So any closing comments you would like to leave to the Everyday Linux podcast listeners? Uh, so Firefox OS is currently out in Europe and also 
uh, just launched a phone in India. It is aimed at the lower end of the smartphone market. So for people that have feature phones or don't really want to go and spend the $600 on the Android, you can get yourself a Flame online for $175. It will be coming out in the States sometime next year. There is no set schedule. But as I said, you can get on uh, online now. And if you Google fl- uh, Firefox Flame, you'll find that device. It's got Twitter. It's got Facebook. Uh, it does messaging. It does all the things that every other smartphone does just at a nicer price point awesome well thank you very much thank you thanks so that's pretty good everything you want only cheap i like that yeah so it's much like linux on the desktop is kind of like firefox is striving to be the spirit of linux on the phone you know if you have a browser you can have a modern web experience uh so and that's kind of you know if you have a mobile os that can you know, unfortunately, Facebook and Twitter, that's what everybody wants, or at least used to want. I don't know. I still want Flash, dang it. <laughs> no Justice League for you. <laughs> All right. So uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, I don't really have any other follow-up. So what next? did you? What did you go to next? Um, well, the next one I did that we're going to cover is it's um, the name of the thing was the cloud in 10,000 words or 10 pictures, you know, going off the pictures worth a thousand words. Uh, this was from a Red Hat employee named Gordon Haft. And he just kind of talked about how basically the crowd, the, the crowd, the, the cloud is getting crowded. No, it is growing and it's just getting big. And that the infrastructure that we have today is not enough to manage the cloud and they talked about moving um and this came up in several different times and i i don't know if i can really encapsulate it and put it in oversimplified terms but instead of uploading your data to a data center for the analysis and uh, data mining to happen there's simply too much data coming in to do that what they're working on is making the routers at the edge of the cloud more smart so that way the data can be analyzed kind of on the fly and you just get the important aspects of it because there's just simply so much information being transferred over the wire or over the airwaves now that it's really impossible to quantify it all and that it's only going to get more they talked about how there is currently about two to three devices um, on the, in the cloud for every person, uh, in the world. And then that that number is going to go up to four or five or even six inside 10 years. And so they really need better ways to manage the cloud, to segment the cloud, to, you know, data mine inside it. It was just, it was kind of one of those. I was just like, you know, I, I, I had no idea. And I consider myself at least a semi knowledgeable technology person but i was just blown away by the sheer scope of uh of the internet world has, that we live in today you know what's interesting is that's sort of uh history repeating itself right so when computing first came along there was the mainframe right and you had terminals that went to the mainframe and then we we got to the point where it was more than a mainframe could handle so we started making terminals smart and then the personal computer came about, and everything was done in the personal computer, and you reached out to another machine very rarely. And then we the, the personal computer now couldn't do it all, so we started moving back to cloud computing. And so the, the personal computer became a gateway once again. It's the mainframe all over again. 
But now right. we're finding the same thing. The cloud is now getting overrun, so we need our gateways, our personal computers to be smarter again. But now the personal computer is going to be shifted one level up, and it's going to be the gateway computer that's smart, and your computer is still, you know, dumb. But even the dumb terminal of today is as smart as the mainframe of 1970. So it's it's kind of amazing how that works. It's a cycle repeating itself, but it's a cycle getting stronger and higher every time it goes. Um, one of my favorite things about my Android phone is that I can talk to it and I can, you know, push the say, okay, Google, and it pops up and I can talk to it. Well, initially that all had to be, I had to have an internet connection. Well, a recent update downloaded a chunk of that to my phone. So now it can understand some things, not everything, uh, without an internet connection, which means that now my phone is doing what the cloud used to do. Once again, moving from the mainframe to the personal device. But, you know, that cycle is going to, it's it's like a it's like the ocean. The tides come in and go out. And when the tide is out, it's the mainframe or the cloud. When the tide is in, it's the, the personal device. And that's always going to go. But the tide is rising the whole time. Yeah, it's like, um, well, this new frontier is opened up. And it's opened up with little things that can only say, hey, I'm out here. But they can't do anything. So they have to send all the data back you know, back to the civilized country to find out what to do. But as more and more stuff gets out here, those those small frontier towns, you know, those small frontier outposts become towns, those towns become cities, and then those cities become population centers. So because the frontier advanced past that point, you know, your phone used to couldn't do anything, but, you know, make phone calls, and then it could access the internet. And now, you know, you can have a phone with gigs of storage and add-on for so much more, you know, your phone is more powerful than a laptop from less than 10 years ago. So, and the frontier has gone beyond the phone to, you know, you have Google glasses, smartwatches, and more wearable tech. And that's, those are the things now they, they're just out there and they can kind of create data and record data, but they can't do anything with it. So they have to upload it either to your phone or to some backend infrastructure somewhere. But eventually, you know, as technology keeps improving, your wearable tech will then have the horsepower to do its own computing. And it just kind of goes down like that. So it's kind of a weird, you know, on in the one hand, it's a great day to be alive. But on the other hand, I wish I was a hermit back in the Middle Ages. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, we... I think we are we're maybe not there yet, but we're really close to the point where technology cannot be taken from us. Our society as, cannot exist without technology, right? Up that hasn't been true for a long time. Technology was an advantage, but you know, the cavemen could do without fire if they had to. And then the bronze age, you know, you could get by. But we're getting to the point now where society as we know it won't exist without technology as we know it. I don't I don't know if we're there yet, but we're close, I think. Well, I mean, I guess a lot of that would be how do you define the word technology? You know, it's almost like, you know, we could um we might could exist without the internet, but we couldn't exist without a computer. Right. And then, you know, the next generation, they might be able to exist without the brain implant, but they wouldn't be able to exist without the internet. And then the next generation, we're just the Borg and we've assimilated everything <laughs> and right. it doesn't matter. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. You know, have we crossed over that plateau 
to where we can no longer survive without the one thing below it. Um, I mean, th- you know, the preppers will always be there, but that society will not be this society. So you, right. it will be the collapse of the society as we are. The humanity will go on, and it's not going to be quite going back to the Stone Age because you can never put the genie completely back in the bottle. But it will be a, an entirely different society at at some point, and I think that's where we are. Maybe not. Maybe we're close, but we're soon. It will be where it just won't be recognizable as the same society if our technology goes away. Yeah, if a certain all- technology goes away. If you, uh, you know, like a, in a dystopian type science fiction, the, the technology has almost become a religious society, uh, worshiping the technology. And that's the remnants of the old days. And then, right. you know, so yeah, it's, that's a, man, that would be an interesting conversation to have. Um, you know, have, have we got, you know, try to identify the levels, you know, first came fire, then came metal and, and whatever, you know, if you took electricity away, there would be, co- our society would collapse. There's no doubt. I mean, large chunks of people would die because we wouldn't yeah. be able to transmit food and power and heat and, uh, have the ability to clean water and all that kind of stuff. So humanity might survive but our society would definitely crumble right so yeah that kind of went weird but it was good weird um so the next one was uh i i just gotta say how i built a linux powered radio station that sounds interesting yeah i was really looking forward to this um if you see me looking away because i have on my other computer the actual schedule with the actual titles in them and this was by david klan k-l-a-n-n of driftless community radio so it's a community radio station that had no budget you know obviously we're a podcast that has no budget so i thought hey this is pretty cool um and they were just talking about how he was able to start a radio station um and running it off of Linux powered, whether they were OSs or the background things. Uh, and he talked about some of the different things. Uh, you know, looking back, I wish I would have just turned on my microphone and hit record on this one because it would have been cool to remember the names of some of the stuff that he, um, talked about. And because I had listened, I had just kind of finished up the, uh, art of podcasting. If you go back into the element OP archives, I was able to understand some of the things that he was mentioning in there, but it was really cool. Cause he talked about how Linux has come a long way. And like he has showed a screenshot, uh, one of their servers had been up for years without having been rebooted. Um, and you know, they have fiber between, uh, with their radio station and their transmitter and how they were able to communicate with the transmitter, um, and all this kind of stuff. It was just a really cool, interesting topic that because it's been a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember much about it, but it was really cool. And everybody had questions for him. So I wasn't able to get a chance to talk to him i would have liked to but i really wanted to go to the one that came after this so i couldn't hang around and talk to him but it would have been cool to sit down and talk with him for a few minutes it was a it was a really interesting talk and you know you don't have to have super high powered um, expensive software um now some of the linux things were paid stuff that he had um, but it was just an interesting topic 
All right. And what was the next interview you have for us? Um, well, the next interview is uh, Tom, and I don't remember Tom's last name. And I was actually going to ask Chris because he's involved in the Fedora computer, uh, community. And so Chris would probably recognize the name uh, with Callaway. Chris being a – Yeah, Tom Calloway with uh, Chris being a Fedora ambassador. But Tom was one of the guys um, – one of the presenters at the Raspberry Pi, which we'll talk about after the interview. But go ahead and cue up Tom. All right. All right. I'm standing here with Tom Calloway of Red Hat. He was involved with a really interesting talk on uh, hacking the Raspberry Pi this morning. So, Tom, thank you for being on our podcast. Thanks, Seth. Happy to be here. All right. And uh, so what are your uh, impressions of how this LinuxCon stacks up to others? Well, I, I think it's got a lot of more people here than I've seen in the past, which is a good amount of growth. I think the talks have been exceptionally good quality this year, and uh, it's, it's great to see so many people excited about the possibilities of Linux. Awesome. And uh, so, Tom, where do you work at, and kind of how did you get involved in computers and open source and Linux? So I work for a team inside Red Hat called Open Source and Standards, which is a special projects group inside the CTO's office. Uh, we work on a number of things, mostly tied to community outreach. Uh, my main role is to do university outreach, is to partner with universities to help them uh, adopt open source ideas and technologies into their environments so that students get a chance to play with things like Linux and open source technologies during their tenure in university or college. Uh, in addition to that, I also do uh, a whole smattering of random stuff in Fedora, and I also get to play with open source hardware and 3D printers. Awesome. And uh, I wish we had video here because today's like dressed as your superhero day. And so I'm interviewing Thor and he's like flipping his hair as he's talking to keep it out. Uh, so, Tom, how would our listeners who aren't necessarily programmers and developers, how, how would they be able to advance Linux and maybe help out in spreading the word? Well, I think that, you know, there is a lot of value in users taking that first step and starting to become a contributor. And that doesn't have to be writing any code at all. That can be as simple as testing feature functionality, testing updates for your distribution of choice, uh, updating documentation, writing even little blog posts that say, this is my attempt to do X in Linux and sharing that with the world because Google and other search engines have made it such that it's really easy to find those sorts of things that are out there. So if you put it out there, people will find it when they have the same problem and you'll help somebody else who may be able to comment in the comments field say, well, I see that you did this. Did you try this other thing? And it starts to build connections and build community and you start to learn and become more involved and start helping other people. So you start searching for other blogs to help out on and before you know it, you're, you know, waist deep in a Linux project and you're really working on something that you're passionate about. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. I don't want to ne really hold you up all day, but any final comments to the everyday user out there? Don't be scared of Linux. It's not going to bite you. It's not going to hurt you. Don't be afraid of the terminal. Try something new and see what happens. The worst thing, you have to reinstall. All right. Thank you. Uh, cool. Thank you yeah, very so much. So I just Actually wanted to echo one of his comments about... Uh, um, documenting what you do. I ha I do that often for me, right? I'll make a blog post about something or a forum post or whatever so that I can find it later. But it also, you know, it benefits the, the community at large. Yeah, and, you know, this is, um, it's not just 
us here at the podcast trying to sound relevant. You know, this guy works at Red Hat attached to the CTO. So he's somebody in the know in Linux. And he stressed, you know, it's not like I went off the air and say, hey, can you kind of talk about this? This was kind of an off the cuff question to him. And that's his response. So again, you don't have to be a developer proficient in 13 command line in that you can do blindfolded. It's just like, if you know how to turn on a computer and access a web page, then you're able to contribute. Um, you know, yes, Linux needs developers and Linux needs coders, but Linux needs everyday people using it, keeping it grounded, or you get the geek going off doing super geeky stuff and that has left the plane of reality and does no one any good. <laughs> so, um, you know, everyday people, can have a great impact in Linux as well. So I just wanted to point out, you know, that wasn't me asking him to say that. That was his thoughts on the subject. So. All right, cool. So next, I mean, you, the next thing you have on your list there is a little bit about the Raspberry Pi, one of my favorite new toys. Yes, uh, Ruth, and I won't try to pronounce uh, her last name, um, but she and Tom did the thing where they just, and they actually have a book out on Raspberry High hacks and Raspberry Pi hacks and projects. Um, and she just kind of talked about and, and, uh, you know, and there were some slides showing the different things. And, you know, and of course she's like, the first hack you've probably done is make a media center, which Mark, yeah. I know you've done. Um, uh, but then they talked about some of the other different things that you can do and, how, you know, the Raspberry Pi really isn't a build yourself a computer kind of thing, but it's like use a computer to automate something else, whether it be some type of robot or anything else, but it is small enough that you can attach it in there. You know, you can put Wi-Fi. It's got regular USB ports. It has different pinouts. You can do video output and you can use, if you're a tinkerer, you know, slash hobbyist hands on, you know, maybe you don't like typing at a computer, but you like, like, you know, you would rather play with Legos than, you know, sit down in front of a computer screen. Well, maybe get yourself a Raspberry Pi and tinker and make something with it. And it just talked and the different things that can be done doing. That. I've been considering making a, a NAS out of a Raspberry Pi. We've talked about the fact that you can probably buy a NAS cheaper than you can build one, but that's not fun. So, you know, buy some drives, throw something on there and make a make a NAS out of a Raspberry Pi. That would be super low power. Right. I came across a blog post where this guy, um, he actually built a tablet. Uh, you know, he bought a touch screen, uh, that was compatible and actually a cell phone battery to provide power for it. And, you know, with the pinouts and the tablet innards was the Raspberry Pi. And so he, he bought this like carbon, uh, uh, kind of plate cast off thing and he used wood cut out to be the molds for it and mount the pie on the side where the holes coming out of the pie would match up and uh it was just it was an interesting article and you know granted you could buy an android a seven inch android from some knockoff thing for less than fifty dollars and this ended up costing like two hundred dollars because you don't have the economy of scale but it was kind of cool that he built a functional 
tablet and you know it wasn't android it was uh linux and you know you have a little sd card slot where you can have additional memory you can stick a wi-fi one of those little tiny wi-fi cards in there inside the case to get wireless access and it was just kind of a cool project and you know that's one of the things you can do with a raspberry pi you know you couldn't like take your laptop apart and make a uh a tablet because that would be a honking tablet but you know the raspberry pi not much bigger than a credit card all right well uh let's uh, you had a couple other things there unless you have any objections let's just jump straight to the interview from these people and then we'll wrap okay. up that section uh wrap, wrap up this section okay time. uh so this is all Ruth. right so yeah th- sweary maybe uh s-u-e-h-l-e i i I don't remember if I asked her her name, but uh, Ruth something. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Seth coming at you from the floor of LinuxCon, where I am interviewing Ruth Seeley, who works at Red Hat and knows everything there is to know about the Raspberry Pi. Ruth, thanks for being on our podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, although that might be a bit of an exaggeration, like a lot. Well, you gave the podcast, or you went, you gave the talk about it, and I thought it was so cool that apparently everybody's already done everything there can be done with the Raspberry Pi. I'm sure there is some novel project out there that I haven't been clever enough to think of yet, but yeah, if you have ideas of things that you'd like to build with a Pi, you can Google Raspberry Pi thing that you thought of, and there's a good chance you'll find somebody who has some inspiration for you. Awesome. Well, Ruth, I see from your name badge you work at Red Hat, so take like maybe a minute and just tell us who you are, what you do, and why you fell in love with computers. Sure. I'm on the open source and standards team at Red Hat, and that is a group within the company that works with our upstream community projects, uh, more so than the products that you might think of when you think of Red Hat. And so I work a lot with the Fedora community, uh, RDO, Overt, other groups like that. And uh, we have a team of about 20 now and growing. And of course, Red Hat's always hiring. And so we like new open source enthusiasts to come along. I got involved with Linux originally as a web developer. And I guess you say interested in computers in general. I don't even know. I don't remember computers not being around. And I remember uh, National Geographic World, I think the kids version of National Geographic, used to come with a basic program spread over about four pages. And you would sit there and painstakingly type it out and discover you forgot a semicolon back on line 30 or something. That is really cool. That's like, um, I never had National Geographic when I was younger. But uh, so what are your thoughts of uh, LinuxCon 2014? It's a great show. I've been doing LinuxCon for a number of years now, and it, it's always a really great show. They, they put on a good program here, and I, I've been in the booths in the expo hall for most of the conferences. I haven't seen a lot of the talks, but I've been hearing really good things. It sounds like it, it's been some great content. Well, uh, just so our audience will know, Ruth and I were talking before the interview started. She loves bacon, so she would fit right at home in the EDL community. Ruth, what's your favorite bacon thing? I like to wrap raspberry pie in bacon as a unique dessert. I find it's a bit crunchy, but if you bake it at just the right temperature, you can get some smoothness on the PCB. helps it go down a little bit easier. Awesome. And she said that with such a straight face. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, today's comic book day, and so I'm talking with um, the Black Widow. So it's really super cool dream come true for me. So, Ruth, um, any last comments? I don't want to keep you all day. Uh, I also once dressed as a zombie and took a picture of myself with someone dressed as bacon. You might be the most coolest person I have ever met. Thank you for taking the time out. That was easy. Yeah. All right. So bacon and pie. Bacon pie. Yes. Um, 
Yeah. So, and here's one thing. Ruth is going to be at the Ohio Linux Fest in October, and we have coming up in a couple of weeks an interview uh, with someone from the Ohio Linux Fest. So kind of a tie in to future as well as heading back to the past. Good segue right. type thing there. So uh, do you have any, before we leave the Linux Con 2014, any final comments or observations that you'd like to make? No, um, it was the things that were more interesting for me were the things that weren't necessarily the hardcore, uh, Linux developer type stuff. Like one of the booths they had set up was you had to see how fast you could assemble a server. And basically you had drive cages and, um, colored cat five cable. You had to arrange all, you had to get all the colors in the same rack and you had to get the cages in there. And how fast could you do that? And, for one brief period of time, I was actually on the leaderboard and the winner got something. It might have been a Raspberry Pi or it was a, it was a pretty cool thing, you know, to just be given away there. So, um, it, it was those things to me were more exciting because I'm not the Linux developer person. So those were the things that were probably more enjoyable to me. So would you, would you go back? Um, were you not a uh, member of the media? Would you go back on your own? You know, I would like to. I would not do the security developers conference. That that kind of blew me away, and it kind of colored. I just I felt so out of place there that that carried over into the actual Linux Con. So I wouldn't do that again. But just going to Linux Con. Yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't, I would do that. You know, it would be a consideration of money at that point, but there was enough, enough things there that were interesting if you're kind of just a general geek type person. Oh, and I got to have a Wonut. Wonut? So, uh, yeah, a waffle oh. donut that's going to be like the next, uh, food craze. Okay. Thing, so, so a waffle batter fried in a ring. Uh, but no, it's like basically a waffle kind of deep fried and glazed. So I'm, I'm all on, all on board for that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was okay. All right. So, uh, I guess we're going to wrap up Linux con 2014 there and move on to this week in history. Yes. This one is something near and dear to my heart. September the 8th, 1966, the first Star Trek series premieres on NBC. Geeks everywhere, you know, this is the day it all began. And they ambitiously said that it would be a five-year mission, hoping that the show might run five years. It didn't run five years, but it's been running uh, 30 years, 40 years, you know, because it's uh, uh, 50 years almost. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't the original show, but Star Trek lives on. Well, I think it just goes to show you how poorly they marketed it and tried to exploit it because once it got canceled, it became one of the highest rated syndicated shows almost like overnight. Right. So had they done a better job building up and marketing it, it could have lasted five years or more. The audience was there. They just didn't know how to capitalize yeah. on it. And Roddenberry was a, a not only a visionary, but a troublemaker. I mean... The first interracial kiss on a network television was there, and they almost threatened to to fire him over that one. Um, so, right, you know, good stuff. Uh, uh, it's it's 
it's interesting to see that uh, the one of the shows that we love so much is a utopian future. There are so many dystopian futures, but Star Trek is a utopian right. future, and 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 that's the one that that rings true with people. So that that says something, I guess, about humanity. Yeah, pie in the sky type people, <laughs> you humans. Woo-hoo. All right, so uh, let's uh, Seth uh, pick four news stories and i'll let you decide what they are um let's hmm. uh the common passwords one nah let's not do that one um let's talk about google google when google when google lowers the bar it's a good thing all right so this article i actually came across on forbes um are actually something that linked to an article on Forbes, uh, but Google, um, they, at the IO developer conference, they kind of rolling out their Android one. Um, it's a lower powered kind of smartphone, but it's a way to kind of push the smartphone into the hands of people who maybe necessarily couldn't afford it before. So they're trying to help, if not lower, if not eliminate the technology divide, kind of lower the technology divide to give people more access that didn't have it before. So again, you know, you're not going to be getting the latest, uh, Apple iPhone or the latest Samsung thing from Galaxy, but you're getting a, a hundred dollar and unsubsidized phone cost. And, uh, so I think it's, uh, it's kind of cool because it gives people who didn't have access to the internet before it kind of gives them access now. Yeah. And that hundred dollar phone is the $500 phone from a few years ago, looking at the specs. Right. Right. But you know, it's kind of now that technology is more, it's more refined. So it's able to be smaller. It's a, it's not as finicky. It can handle you know, a little more bumps and bruises now that it's not first generation out there. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a way to, like I say, bring more people into the computing world. And if your first, if your first, uh, taste of computing isn't totally crappy, that seems, that's like the one you stick with. So if your first taste is Google Android, then you're probably an Android fan for life. So, you know, and since, there's still a large segment of the population of the world that doesn't have a smartphone. You know, if you can introduce them to Android and get them to be an Android fan, well, then you're increasing your marketing base. So, I mean, it's not a bad thing. Well, let's talk about what is a bad thing, and that is a fake cell phone tower. Uh, Yeah. Oh, which one is that? The one right below. Hold on. Uh, Okay. Um. Yeah, this one is uh welivesecurity.com. I think this was uh one of the sites I followed linked here, but you know, we've talked a lot kind of about man in the middle attacks and just uh if you don't know what that is, you know, you think you're on somebody's hotspot, but you're not. You're on somebody's hotspot who links to that, so they're able to look at all your stuff that goes through. And that's probably an oversimplification, and I just taught myself in a circle. But anyway, the the sorry, the gist of the story is there are 17 cell phone towers that have been found in America. They look like ordinary towers. They can only be identified if you have a heavily customized uh, handset, but they're not like AT&T or Verizon or Sprint. They are 
nobody knows what they are. Um, and kind of the, uh, gist of this story, there's a crypto phone 500, which like I say, it's this, uh, heavily customized Android tinfoil hat geek loving type phone. And these towers just sit there and you connect to them and they're kind of like, um, they're trying to like hack your phone and figure out what's there. And nobody knows, or if they do know, they're not saying who created these towers or who maintains these towers. But so, you know, just because you're connected, maybe doesn't necessarily mean you're connected. Um, and so, you know, you say, what's the harm in this? Well, suppose you're accessing chase, uh, you know, you're checking your balance on some website, um, or, you know, you're accessing PayPal or eBay or something that has credit card information, then boom, somebody can gr- get your credentials. And then, you know, that's identity theft and fraud can happen. So, so these are real physical towers or software nodes? Yes, real physical, physical towers. So that, that's an investment so to set up a tower. Yes. Yeah, you're talking... um the, well, according to this article, it takes less than a hundred thousand dollars to kind of set it up. So I, I don't know. I don't know why you would, well, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, if you can spend a hundred thousand to make a, a million, it's worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. That's worthwhile. So it, it was kind of a scary thing. So, you know, I guess I'm going back to landlines <laughs> and, uh, 14.4 modems. For so me. do these things mimic, like, would, would your phone say AT&T? They would think it's connected to AT&T? They say, according to this article, the only way you can tell is if you have this, uh, crypto phone that is designed to be, you know, like I say, super secret, not even tinfoil hat, tinfoil body wrapped in a tinfoil bunker under a tinfoil plateau kind of person to be able to tell it. So apparently, yes, you know, you're, well, and of course, you know, like, you know, there, just because you see a tower that you connect to, that tower probably isn't owned by AT&T. It's owned by Fred's Tower Company, and then they have right, contracts right. with AT&T, Verizon, or whatever to use that space. So now they have they have contracts with Hackers Extreme to utilize that space. Um, and so you don't know who you're connecting to. To get, you know, and so theoretically you're AT&T because of a lease, a licensing or back-end agreement that this tower has with AT&T. Um, but now here's some other tower and apparently it's passing your data along. So you're on the real internet. You're just going through them to get to the internet. It's, it's like, you know, the danger of going to a Starbucks and accessing the free Wi-Fi there is if you're on the Starbucks Wi-Fi, okay, but suppose the person right beside you has um, their laptop with a wireless card configured, has a star- has a uh, hotspot, and they have broadcasting an SSID called Starbucks, and you've connected to them. Now, they're able to capture all the information that passes through them, but then they're turned around and broadcasting it to the real thing. So you're accessing, you're still accessing PayPal, you're still accessing Facebook, you're still accessing all all of your sites it's just it, you've gone through someone and now they have the potential to have your data now again if you're in if it's encrypted you know whether a vpn or some type of encrypted communications you're not necessarily um you know um at risk but it's just kind of a scary thing and the thing about using these baseband chips is it's fully automatic i mean you the system yeah. doesn't ask you 
hey, do you want to connect to this? It just does. And it says, oh, this is on my network. Let's go. Uh, so that's yep. that's scary and a half. Yeah. So, you know, and, and like in the article, they said they found one at a casino in Las Vegas. Well, the editor noted and said that the person sh- uh, wanted them to stress that it wasn't actually at the casino. It was just in the vicinity of a casino. So suppose, you know, I live in Texas. So we'll use, uh, we'll use the house that Jerry built place, whatever the current name of it is. Suppose you have a tower not at that place, but right beside that place, you're going to be getting thousands and thousands of hits whenever there's an event there. So how do you know you're connecting? When you're on, you know, cell service that you're connecting to a legitimate site. All right. And it can be gone the next week and, you know, nobody would ever know. All right. Let's, let's do this one next. Uh, I, I, I fear this isn't real. (laughs) And it's uh, 800,000 people responded to the FCC saying net neutrality should be a real thing. Uh, yes, that is, hold on, which one? Long live uh, neutrality. In the yeah, hold on. I just, um. Seth hates it when I skip around because he's got things queued up and then I skip around. So it's my fault, not his. Uh, okay. I found it. Yeah, this, I just figured this would be a conversation here, um, that was waiting to happen. But, you know, we've lamented the slow death of net neutrality on this show. And if you look at this article from e-commerce times, many, many, many Americans, um, are, uh, in favor of net neutrality. And, you know, the th- kind of things that brought this back is the current head of the FCC used to be a lobbyist for like, I don't remember if it was AT&T or Comcast or just a group that was sponsored by them. And so when he was appointed to this spot and his first things that he said uh, has an official representative made it just seem like, oh, crap, there goes right. net neutrality. But since then, he's whether he's changed his position or merely moderated his speech is unclear, but at least his speech has been um, more moderated and more along the traditional net neutrality lines. Um, but yeah, so this is, um, if, if you look at this, um, I'm sorry, I'm just, my mind <laughs> right, so, is just, so dying let me jump here. in a little bit. The, the, okay. the upshot is that there are more than 800,000 comments uh, on the FCC website and 99% of them are pro net neutrality. Um, it says that uh, 60% uh, were from letters written by organized campaigns, or it's a 484,000, uh, and then 200 came from uh, law firms. So this is, it's not so much people, it's it's organizations. So it's, it's form letters. If somebody said, click here to send a letter to your representative, uh, and that's good. That's people making their, their findings known, but I wonder... If how much this matters, I mean, if I was a politician, I'm not sure that this would mean much to me that, you know, that 800,000 people clicked a form letter uh, and 200 lawyers wrote into me. I don't think it would mean much compared to 
you know, the lobbyists who are, who are paying me thousands of dollars a minute for, for my time as a quote unquote consultant. Uh, so I, I don't want to get our hopes up too much, uh, and also realize that 800,000 people is a small fraction of the 300 million, um, in the U S 300 million, uh, is our real number of our population. So, uh, it's, you know, it's a fraction of the population. So it's, I, I'm not sure that anybody that this really means anything. So I, I don't want people to, to, to read this and say, ah, net neutrality is good. We have spoken. They have listened. A small fraction of the population have listened, have spoken in a rubber stamped sort of way. And that's, that I think is a problem. Well, and also because of the people who are actually doing this, they're, they're not up for election. You know, there's really, it doesn't matter what public outcry is for this because the people who are going to set this, they're not in danger of losing their jobs from the public. So, you know, they're the entire country, you know, you could have 270 million people take out an actual pen and an actual piece of paper and write a letter and use an actual stamp and mail it to the actual most post office. And he goes, eh, I don't care. I'm not going to open those today. I'm going to rubber stamp what I want to. And then he has no recourse, uh, you know, for violating the will of the American people that he is supposedly there to serve. He is unable to be held accountable by the American people. And, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, um, especially certain courts in East Texas prove that the American people sometimes don't know what's best. Yeah. But in this case, there's no way to hold them accountable. Yeah. So net neutrality battle is not over, but it is it is. I don't think it's winnable. And I'm I'm an optimist by nature. But I think this battle is has has been lost. Uh, it you know, and now it's just a matter of 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 the people realizing that it's been lost, and that there will be such a thing as a quote unquote internet fast lane, which really means that it's everybody else is the slow lane, uh, and it will be law, yeah. and we will have to live with it. And once something is law, it's really hard to change the law. So I'm concerned about that, and I I just think that we're going to look back, you know, in in 15 years and remember fondly the freewheeling days when the internet was open and public, and anybody could do anything, and all all netizens were treated treated equally. Yeah, at this point, it's like we're getting beat, and we're just trying to sue for peace and get one or two concessions we might can live with. Yeah. Is is a military metaphor of where we're at. I, I tend to agree with that. Um, you know, the hope would be that they would make, um, they would treat it. Um, they would make them all common carriers, much like they do the phone system and really kind of what killed innovation in the phone system. Um, but yeah, you know, if all of a sudden DSL and cable companies, uh, were classified as common carriers, that would fix a lot of the issues. But how is that going to happen? Yeah. And and yes, it would fix some issues, and it would totally destroy some others. So it's right. Anytime you're dealing with billions of people and their access to billions of people, it's it's ugly because there isn't a single ruling authority on the internet. Uh, what we do in the U.S. won't mean anything to Europe, and what Europe does won't mean anything to to Africa, and what Africa does won't mean anything to Australia. It's uh, you know, it's. I, I think it's just, it is going to be what it is. There, the uh, 
commerce is going to win out over um, communism uh, to to stretch for alliteration uh, as it always has. Um, and I'm 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 bummed about it, frankly. But you know, Facebook yeah, campaigns forward this GIF or or click here to rubber stamp this letter. I'm not going to say don't do them, but I, I'm dubious about whether or not they're actually useful. Well, and you know, congressmen and elected officials will tell you that those things are meaningless because you know one person can have twenty or thirty separate email addresses, and so you can see thirty people. Uh, and show up as 30 different people, but it all goes back to the right. same person. But yet, if you're going to take the time to physically mail something, um, you know, there's, that's like a one to one correlation yeah. kind of thing. So, and as any Windows XP user can tell you, unsupported does not necessarily mean unused. Yeah. Good. This was one I wanted to talk about just as a general thing. But yes, backtrack is something that, um, was last updated in August of 2012. Um, and they've kind of been rebranded under Cali and Cali is another great penetration testing distro. Basically it's a way for you to kind of how secure is this network I've set up? This is kind of a live distro that you can run. It has security packages, you know, testing, probing for weak links, outdated modules, things like that. But backtrack has been a couple of years now that it has been no longer updated, but yet it is still downloaded and it has just passed the 1 million download mark and it's still being downloaded. So this is one of those things just because something isn't maintained or isn't supported, that doesn't mean it's automatically garbage and shouldn't be used. You know, much like XP is quote unquote officially dead, but yet a large portion of the internet desktop use is still XP. Um, so just because something is old, don't necessarily throw it away because backtrack i mean you could say well the newer things do it better because they do this 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 and this but you know a lot of the things probing for open ports you know that really hasn't changed much if you're probing for an open port something that worked five years ago is still going to work great today um granted there might be other things that can do more than that but for a basic penetration testing thing backtrack is still viable and i would say the same thing about TrueCrypt. Yeah, the new right. version of TrueCrypt has been neutered, but the old version is still good and still solid and yes. still being audited and still being, you know, uh, it's still a good thing. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, a warning out there. We we often look for the next greatest thing, but sometimes the next thing isn't greater than the, the other thing. Right. All right. I think that's going to wrap up our news for this week. Uh, so this is the part where I tell you how you can be on our next show uh, in the form of a comment or uh, or an email or a voicemail. And you do that by going to Everyday Linux, uh, excuse me, elementopi.com and uh, click on the Contact Us uh, button at the top of the page. That will send us uh, a pre-formatted email. Or if you want to do your own emailing, you can send uh, an email from your favorite client, Fire Up Mutt, uh, your favorite uh, command line client, and bang out some ASCII characters to email 
edl at elementop.com, and that will get to us as well. Or if, uh, uh, like Fuzzy from Colorado, you want to uh, be on the show in your own uh, sweet voice, you can do that by calling 559-IMOP anywhere in North America, uh, and that will be free to you. And you can uh, leave us a voicemail. Or if you're outside of North America, just record something and send it to me, and we'll do it that way. So uh, we always like to hear from you. Also, don't forget that we have our forums uh, there where users, uh, our community members can talk to each other, right? So these are the ways that you can talk to us. But the forum is there, and it's a real thing, and people are really using it and communicating with each other. We are not just a podcast. We are a community, and we uh, encourage your uh, contributions to that. Having said all that, Seth, what do you got for your time waster of the week this week? Okay, well, this is um, a site I came across a while back, and I just figured I would hold on to it. It is deadmalls.com. So you can go there, and you can just see, kind of take a link of different malls that have died throughout the history of this nation, and kind of click on one and see the backstory. Um, you can go by state and look at the stories of them, um, different links, different developers, different merchandise. Um I, w- I just wasn't feeling it this week for a, a weird story, so I thought I would just kind of go and try to peg the random meter out in a different direction. Deadmalls.com for your historical overview of a segment of retail that the internet has all but destroyed. I wonder if Big Town Mall in Dallas, Texas is there. Big Town Mall was, yes, there is it a- was the thing for a long time, and then it just died. Yes, it was the first enclosed mall in Texas, and it opened in 1959, and it was torn down in sometime in the 2000s. Uh, once Town East Mall opened, um, that was the death knell of the big. So town. I didn't realize that it had that distinction of being the first enclosed mall. You think prior to that, it was strip malls, a bunch of different stores. You had to go out of one store into the open to get to another store, uh, and then you know they were trendsetters in that you could all be in one ginormous building. Well, and more so that you had the huge department stores. Right. Like in Dallas, there was a Sears store that was like at the very least five stories tall and it was all Sears, but you had the apparel department, you had the toy department, you had the um, appliance department. So, you know, and a Sears wouldn't be in the same building has a JC penny and then you wouldn't have all these little individual people. So really it kind of, they kind of, and department stores still exist, but they're not nearly as big or special as they used to be. Um, You know, specialized, I think you meant. No, no, it, oh, going unusual, to a department gotcha. store was a, was a special thing, you know, otherwise it was just kind of the general five oh, right, and dime. Okay. But if you wanted to go, you know, the, you, that was like a dress up, go to a church kind of event to go to the department store for the generations before right. us. By our time, it was pretty much the mall. Yeah. What was it, uh, in my favorite movie, the Christmas story? Um, there was the department store. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, it was, it was a thing. It was an event. Uh, and yeah. you know, then going to the mall was an event and now going to the mall for me is an eye stabbing thing that I would rather uh, pull off toenails than do. Yeah. I used to enjoy going to the mall and just walking around and, you know, I had different stores I would go in and look around, but you know, you'd have the department stores, but then you'd have this little store that just specialized in like CDs and movies. And this other one was, you know, uh, 
hot topics for the weird t-shirts right. kind of thing. And, you know, now, you know, you can go to, you can go to elementopi.com slash Amazon for all your shopping yes. needs. Um, and I do buy almost everything from elementopi.com slash Amazon. That is, that is the modern day mall. Uh, and my, you know, I never get anything spilled on me and nobody's rude to me. It's great. Uh, but it is, it is, I, it's, Every time we do do one of these topics, I realize what an old man I am. <laughs> I don't want to go to the mall. <laughs> Leave me alone. When I was a kid, yeah. let me tell you. My mom used to take me to the mall and just drop me off there all day. I mean, the, the mall rats phenomenon in the 80s was a thing. Kids right. just spent all day during the summer at the mall because, you know, you had right. food, you had entertainment, you had fountains that you could run through is everything and uh, i don't you had air conditioning yeah, i don't know if people still do that if mall rats are still a thing but man when in 1985 86 it was it was the place to be yep kids today i tell you they don't know what they're missing <laughs> maybe they do um I, I we always get onto these weird discussions and and you know i would apologize for it but that's what you tune in for um and having said that thank you for tuning in we certainly appreciate you being a listener seth as always thanks for your great work for being our official correspondent to the linux con 2014 and uh, we'll see you all next week because that ends this episode of everything